The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. There is a time for question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Showtime. Welcome to Night Fright Indeed. It is pouring outside the studio tonight, folks. It's dark, it's cold, and it's downright nasty. You know, it's the perfect night to settle in your most comfy chair. Get the comforter way up tonight. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, or get a beverage of your choice going. Tonight, get ready for this. We're going to look at Black Magic up close and personal tonight we look at the possibilities of hp lovecraft's works being used in black magic anton lavey's satanism voodoo wicca alistair crowley amongst many others our guest tonight is john l steadman and he is author of a brand new book i'm holding up called hp lovecraft the master of horrors influence on modern occultism. I'd like to welcome John to the show for the very first time. Quite a book, John, full of revelations for me when yeah. I read it. Now, I want to ask you, was H.P. Lovecraft indeed practicing black magic? Uh, a lot of occultists like to think that, and uh, a lot of them realize, of course, uh, that they can't really prove that. Uh, empirically, and so what they'll make the claim is that Lovecraft was unconsciously practicing black magic, and they make that claim by saying they had avid dream life, and that uh, dreaming is actually something that a magician can use magically. And so they claim that on the dream level, he was practicing magic. But Lovecraft himself well, didn't believe in magic. He was a materialist and atheist, and he actually identified himself as a mechanic, mechanistic materialist, and what he meant by that was that nothing exists apart from matter, and all the facts of existence and experience can be explained in reference to the laws of material substances. So any kind of uh, immaterial substances, and that would be magical powers, and that would also include any kind of magical entities, such as gods or goddesses, are immaterial. So Lovecraft denied their existence. Lovecraft was also an atheist, so that was like adding uh, insult to injury. You know, so he, he definitely did not believe in magical entities and magical power, and he definitely wasn't practicing magic. John, um, was Lovecraft accessing a universal consciousness, if you will, 
And if that is the case, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to ask you, is there a difference between black magic, which of course everybody in the world equates because of horror movies, etc., with evil or white magic that everybody of course associates with good? Is there a difference between the two? Yeah, there sure are. Like in my book, uh, the book is primarily written for uh, fans of science fiction, horror, and fantasy, and not necessarily for specialists of magic. Now, I get into some very technical magical things in the book, but uh, it's written primarily for people that don't know much about the subject. So in the first chapter, I clarify exactly what magic is. I give a definition of it, and uh, then I explain... Uh, the different types of magical methodologies. And one of the things I clarify in that chapter, because I have to, because like, like you said, the term black magic has very unpleasant connotations. They view that type of magic as being evil, or at the very least, morally reprehensible. So what I do is this. I define uh, the difference between black magic is simply based on, on uh, uh, what type of magic it is. So what the black magician does, in my definition, is a, it's, a, it's magic that you use simply to gain knowledge or power, and that's all. And then what white magic is, it's actually centered on the goal of spiritual perfection or spiritual attainment. Now, uh, w the way the evil and the good comes in, it depends on the actions of the person or the person themselves. Like, there might be a black magician... But the black magician isn't necessarily evil. He can be very good if he's acting ethically. So if he's pursuing knowledge or power in an ethical way, then he's good, even though he's a black magician. Conversely, a white magician could be very evil if he's pursuing his path towards spiritual perfection, but he's doing it in a way that's harmful to other people. I would classify Aleister Crowley as a white magician, because all of his life, he was uh, practicing spiritual perfection, trying to attain it. But yet he was a very ethical, unethical person. He was a very evil person in a lot of ways. And what so he was evil, but he was a white magician. I'm sorry, John. What makes you say that he was evil? Are there examples you can oh, give us of how you would define that? Oh, I can give you many examples. He had a pernicious effect on almost everyone he came into contact with. He had a tendency to use people. He had a very colossal ego. Almost every woman they got involved in, if they weren't mentally ill when they first met him, they ended up mentally ill, and, and they usually ended up suffering from severe depression. Sometimes they actually went insane. He didn't take care of his children. He fathered several children. He would never take care of his children at all. He would never pay any child support. He would use people. He would live off people. And he would uh, practice acts of downright cruelty to people as well. So he was a very evil sort of man, and on yet he uh, was pursuing the path of spiritual perfection all of his life. So he was not really a black magician. People usually associate Crowley with being a Satanist or a, a black magician, but he really wasn't. How would you cross-reference him with a person like Anton LaVey, who invented Satanism in the 60s? Yeah, well, Satanism was around before the 60s, of course. But the thing about LaVey right. was... Well, he did basically the same thing that Gerald Gardner did for the Wiccan religion. He took a tradition. Now, Satanism originally in the Middle Ages was actually kind of a rebellion system. It was like a reaction against Christianity. Christianity is very dominant back then, and so people had to find a way that the people that felt inclined to do this had to feel a way to rebel against that. So they would meet in secret, and they would often do rituals that were meant to parody 
the Christian church. That's where the black mass came from. I mean, you can't have a black mass unless you have the mass, right? So they would parody the Christian mass. They would parody different things that priests did, uh, and they would uh, do sacrilegious actions, and they were doing it to make themselves feel strong and to kind of like stand up against the Christian religion. And they were doing this all in secret, of course, too, because if they'd been doing this in a light of day, they would have been uh, captured as heretics. And they would have suffered the fate of a lot of people that, uh, that were heretics back in those days. What Anton LaVey did is he actually cleaned up Satanism. And uh, he uh, turned it into a religion that wasn't really rebelling so much against Christianity, but rather he was uh, elevating the power the uh, powers, of, the naturalistic powers of mankind to the level of a god. And he called that saint, of course. And so uh, you're not really worshiping saint when you're a saintist. But what you're doing is you're paying homage to the natural powers that all of us have. And, uh, and then the magic plays off uh, uh, those powers. Is that also, and he also let, uh, set aside... Yes? Oh, please continue. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Well, I, I, all I was saying was what, what Levine did also, he uh, took us away from the classical distinction, like there's a god out there, and then there's a saint, and these two uh, things are actual beings that are opposed to each other. And what he did was kind of humanize that concept. God is now like more of an interior kind of a thing, and then Satan is more, more of an interior kind of thing, too. And he would argue that the predominant uh, aspects of the psychology and the mind of man were the naturalistic and those who were represented by Satan, and those were predominant over the so-called God impulses, which would be like empathy and other qualities like that. They're kind of counterproductive to the natural person. I was going to ask you, John, is the energy that's being accessed by magicians, uh, by somebody seeking spiritual renewal or something along those lines, if you will, is that energy the same um, in terms of, let me give you a good example. Excuse me a second. <coughs> is that the same as if we took fire, and if fire is burning down somebody's house, that be that would be bad. <laughs> that's for sure. Yes, it would. It. But if that same well, it fire, depends on how well insured they. Were. <laughs> good point. <laughs> <laughs> and it depends on where you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as opposed to if you take that same fire and you heat the house. Is that basically the same energy, but just accessed, filtered differently? Oh, so what you're claiming is fire the same as magical energy? Well, n not just fire. I'm just using that as an analogy. But if somebody's accessing this power, we call it black magic, white magic. I just call it magic. It could be the same, one and the same, I guess, is what I'm trying to figure out. Is all that energy the same? And it's just how we define it for ourselves or how we filter it and use it in our everyday life. Well, the way that I define it is this. And, and first of all, I uh, don't clearly uh, uh, I don't clearly address exactly what the source of that energy is. But uh, I'll start it from this way, I guess. You know, like I define magic, of course, in the book as being uh, the use of language, gestures, symbolic objects, and stylized settings. And those are the tools that we use to, to develop magical power. So those things, for the purpose of establishing contact with extraterrestrial entities. Now, what, what, the reason why I define it that way is this, you know. When you go into magic, you have, like, some pretty uh, 
solid goals. Your goal is basically, first of all, not to rely on a, re a religion to save you. Christians, of course, rely on religion to save them. You know, they do their rituals, they trust in their popes or their priests, they take their holy communion, and, and then they hope by doing that that they're going to somehow reach salvation, but they're not taking responsibility for their own salvation. They're putting it on somebody else's shoulders. They put it on Jesus' shoulder, right? Jesus came here and died for mankind's sins, so if we believe in him, him, then we're going to achieve perfection, right? But that's abdicating our responsibility to achieve perfection ourselves. And uh, the white magicians do the same thing. You know, the white magical orders. They abdicate responsibility by engaging in rituals such as uh, mass transubstantiation. But uh, what I'm arguing is what the magician, magical practitioner does, and that's how I like to call them magical practitioners, they're looking for an original relationship with the universe. And what they're trying to do by pursuing that goal, uh, they're not expecting somebody else to do it, but they're working off out their own salvation, and they're finding meaning and purpose in their life because of that. And now, as I said, the black magical systems allow for knowledge and power. The white magical systems are focused on spiritual perfection. But all these things have to come from somewhere. And now we're finally getting to what your question is. Uh, so what's the source of the power? Where does it all come from? And what I argue is they come from the extraterrestrial entities themselves and, and the places that those entities inhabit. So I, I'm giving a very broad interpretation to extraterrestrial. So you could argue that these extraterrestrial entities that serve as the, the battery of the force of magical effects, you could argue they're entirely personifications of the power of your mind. So in other words, when you do magic, you're unlocking and utilizing different aspects of your mind. So the entities in that case are imaginary entities. You evoke them or invoke them, as the case might be, for specific purposes. But they're totally imaginary, and you're actually unlocking powers in your own mind. I also allow for the possibility that these extraterrestrial entities might be actually existing entities, and they inhabit alternate dimensions and you can contact them through ritual and primarily ritual dream control and control magical possession, which are the magical methodologies that I talk about in Chapter 1. And I'm even uh, opening it up to the possibility that extraterrestrial entities are actually actual ontological entities, and they exist in different worlds, on different planets, and they're alien in every sense of the world. I mean, they're just like us, but they're just living on different planets or in uh, remote or inaccessible places. So I leave it up to your interpretation of what the source of the magical power is. But the power is intangible. It can't be quantified the way fire, for instance, or lightning can be quantified. And so in that way, we can't really measure it. Fair enough, John. I think that answered it very perfectly. Folks, we're speaking with John L. Stedman tonight. The book is called H.P. Lovecraft, as I hold it up to the camera. The Master of Horror's Influence on Modern Occultism. And we'll be getting into some more of this in just a second. I want to tell you where you can get the book. www.nightfrightshow.com www.nightfrightshow.com Just click on tonight's guest book cover. Take you right to a spot where you can order this book in the comfort of your own home. And, of course, folks, John goes into far more detail in the book than we're going to be able to get to tonight. But we're going to give you a good go for it. <laughs> it's a fascinating book, and it's a great read, and it's meticulously researched. Now, I just want to tell you a little bit about John. John L. Stedman is a scholar of both H.P. Lovecraft and Western occultism. 
and has been a magical practitioner for over 30 years working with various covens and small groups of initiates. He is a member of the Ordo Templi Orientis. My next question for you, John, is what is Ordo Templi Orientis? Well, that was an organization. They actually claimed that they go all the way back to, uh, uh, to uh, Germany, you know, like in the uh, 17, 1800s. But what it is, basically, it was in a called order that was originated in Germany. And what it is, I've, I've actually uh, would classify that order as a white magical organization because uh, they're interested in spiritual perfection. And, and now I have to clarify one thing about my relationship with them. You know, I was a member, an active member of this thing, uh, but it was many, many years ago. I took the, uh, the uh, initiation degree, which was a zero degree. It was called Minerva. I took that like way back a long time ago in uh, gosh I think it was in 1970 I think it was in May of 1970 and then I kind of moved up the ladder a little bit I took the first degree in 1977 and then the last degree I took was the second degree which was a magician degree and I took that one in 1979 and then I kind of let my membership lapse and I did that for a couple reasons one in order to be a member of the order you have to accept uh, the law of Philema, and you have to accept Alex to Crowley as uh, Logos, or the prophet of the law of Philema. And I found that I didn't really accept that. I didn't really accept Crowley's uh, uh, leadership there. And also, I discovered that I didn't really think that it, that worked for me. The secret, the lies of the heart of the OTO, is very similar to the Catholic religion. The Catholic religion, now, the Catholic religion actually believes when you do the Mass, uh, the, the body and blood of Christ that you're doing there becomes the actual body and blood of Christ. So when you're taking communion, you're actually eating and drinking the flesh and the body of your God, and that will help purify you and make you into a God or goddess uh, after death. Well, the uh, Ordo Templi Orientis, which actually means the Order of the Oriental Templars, what this organization does is they're actually eating, and I, I'll just put this bluntly, they're eating sperm. They're eating sperm and sexual fluids. So they believe that uh, the initiate achieves perfection through having sex with other initiates, and then you consume the combined sexual fluids of the male and the female, and then it helps spiritualize you, too. You notice how similar those two approaches are to perfection. You know, the Catholic and OTR are exactly the same. But I found that uh, the OTO just wasn't working for me, because uh, I'm not so sure that there is such a thing as spiritual perfection. I'm not so sure that we can attain it, and I kind of agree with Lovecraft on that score. And then secondly, I've noticed that the people that practice that magic, it doesn't really help them too much. You know, whenever sex is involved for some reason, people talk like they're spiritualizing themselves, but when sex gets involved, or when blood and flesh gets involved for that matter, uh, the spirituality tends to go out the window, and it tends to make you even more earthly and materialistic. And I would argue that Aleister Crowley became like that. He was completely obsessed and ridden with sex in his later years, and he was also a terrible drug addict in his last years. And I felt, I noticed in his own life, that he couldn't really focus anymore. Once he got into the OTO, he was like engaging in all this sex magical workings, and he was taking all these drugs, and he lost whatever finer edge he had, and I certainly saw no indication of spiritual perfection at all. In fact, I saw de-evolution on the part of Crowley, and certainly I couldn't follow a prophet like that. So I put the OTO behind me, but I want to say the OTO is a growing organization. You know, and I 
think that there are people that might help. It might help Fletcher and the initiates in their quest for spiritual, mental, or moral perfection. But I really found myself no longer having any use for it. I've got a couple of questions for you um, because this has opened up a whole new door for us. Is Lucifer a living entity, if you will, in the same sense that he would be the opposite as we've come to know in the Bible, uh, the Antichrist, if you will, the opposite of Christ? What would be the opposite of Christ? Yeah, does Lucifer actually exist? Yeah, I think all those entities exist. Like, as I said before, like, I could do a ritual right now and I could conjure something called Lucifer. And I leave aside whether that's something in my mind or whether it really exists. And what I do when I do a ritual, I'm not really interested so much in Lucifer. I mean, it's gratifying if he appears the way you kind of like hope he's going to appear, much like the artist is trying to create something, right? Magic is very much an art. You know, you're gratified if you have a successful result. But I'm more interested in the knowledge and the power that I get from that. And I'm more interested specifically in whatever the goal of the magical ritual is. So I focus mainly on goals. If I get what I want, fine. You know, I don't worry too much about the details. I don't actually worry too much about where the thing exists, but I do believe that it does have power, you know, the things I call have power. But uh, I don't believe the problem with things like where you're talking about is there an adversary to Christ or is there an adversary to the devil and stuff. These are all kind of human-centric concerns. I mean, we look at certain things and we kind of put human faces and forms on. I mean, people con conventionally think of Lucifer as being a horned kind of a thing, you know, a horned kind of a god with hoofs and a long tail. They think of Satan in that way, too. But those are human-centric concerns, and those are impositions of the human mind on these things. But whether the things even exist or not, or what they look at, is an entirely different matter. So I, I don't tend to look in religious texts to say, well, here's, here's, here's Christ, and then here's something that opposes Christ, because those are like as silly to me as like the Greek impositions, like viewing God as like a Zeus, a great white beard a figure throwing thunderbolts, or the sun as being like a shining God in a chariot. You know, these are human impositions. Now, I don't, don't know if I answered that correctly, but did I or did I miss it? Yes, no, you, I think you nailed it right on the head. I, I think absolutely. Well, you got, yeah. What we got to remember about gods are like they're sources of energy, but I'm not so sure they exist. Like the Christian God, for him, I would say the Christian God is a very potent force for good. In the U, in, in at least in our world, if we get outside of the planet, we're talking about things entirely different. And that's the genius of Lovecraft. And we can talk about his cosmic uh, stance sometime later if you want. But the interesting thing about God is I believe he's a powerful being, but I'm not so sure that he actually exists in a real way. But it doesn't really make any difference. There are so many people in the world that believe in God. There's the Pope, there's all the Catholics, there's the Protestants. All these people are doing is fueling this thing. Think of God as a gigantic battery up there, drawing energy from all the people that believe in it, right? That's a tremendous source of energy. And so you can utilize that energy in a magical working. Same thing with Satan. Same thing with any other kind of gods. Ancient Sumerian gods, they're all potent sources of energy. You know, but whether they really exist or not in any ontological sense, who really knows? So in other words, do we create our own gods based on that uh, thesis that you've just presented? I believe, I believe so. And I, I have to believe that because I don't believe, uh, I don't, it, it's a one-way kind of a street. 
book. It's us creating our gods. But I don't believe for a minute that there are gods that create us because I don't believe there are any genuine gods in terms of the universe, the, the universe as science perceives it, and as magical thinkers perceive it, and as quantum physicists perceive, perceive it too. I don't believe that the gods are looking back at us. I don't believe they're out there in any kind of human form at all. I think they're in forms that we can't even conceive of, that aren't even forms at all. They're in quantum forms, but they're not in any form we can conceive of. So the, any view of God is from our standpoint, but it's not from the standpoint of God. The only way we could even determine if, if it goes the other way, we'd have to be gods and goddesses ourselves. And, and so far, nobody's come back. Nobody's come back from the dead and said, hey, I've become a god. And it's just like they say in the Christian religion, God created the heavens and the earth. Nobody's come back and verified that. We have documents that say that that's so, but the documents are written from the human-centric position, not from the standpoint of the universe or the cosmos. Is there an afterlife? Where do we go when will we die? The, the, the concern for an afterlife is, again, a very human concern. Uh, the reason why people want there to be an afterlife is because they don't want to die, and they want to feel somehow they're going to continue. I, I don't like the thought of dying myself. Lovecraft didn't want to die. None of us want to die. But if we're going to be genuine, you know, we have to look at quite clearly there's actually no empirical existence or no empirical evidence that would actually confirm that there is such a thing as afterlife. And when you look at concepts of afterlife, they're very human, aren't they? They're kind of like wish fulfillment. Take a look at heaven. Your, your, your uh, traditional Christian person views heaven as a beautiful place, and they usually view it with angels flying around, very human-looking right? Beautiful humans with wings. And they view it as being a beautiful God sitting on a throne and then walking around perfected bodies. But bodies, perfected bodies, shining bodies, free of disease, where everybody's good, everything's perfect. But that looks to me like a wish fulfillment. It looks to me like somebody fervently trying to believe in something because they, they just hope that it's going to be like that. And most people hope also that they're going to see all the people they lost. When you're my age, you've lost a lot of people. Both of my parents are dead. You know, mm. other people that I see there around my age, some of them are getting ready to die, some have died already, right? And I would love being a human, being a weak human, I would love to see all these people again. I would love to go up to heaven, to a beautiful shining realm, and walk around with my father and my mother. But if I want to be honest, there's no real evidence or any reason why we should believe that. And nobody comes back. Nobody comes back. I wish somebody would. I wish my father would come back right now and say, John, you know, I live in heaven now. I'm waiting for you to join me. We're going to have a grand old time. We're going to be perfect. I wish he'd do it, but he's not doing it. And he doesn't. And that doesn't happen for anybody, not one person. So I don't know if there's an afterlife. I kind of hope there is. I kind of wish there is. But realistically speaking, I just don't know. John, is there any way through utilizing magic and being a practitioner yourself, you can make contact with, say, your father, your mother on the other side? I, I don't think so. I really don't think so. Uh, it would be called necromancy, I suppose. But what I found, the uh, examples of necromancy that I've studied in magical lore is it's very unsatisfying. What they do is they'll, they'll actually, uh, what they do is they conjure up a dead body. 
and then they get to talk. But the dead body usually doesn't give them uh, much useful information. It's very good, like if you conjure up, if you got like the dead body of somebody like in Egypt, ancient Egypt, and you ask it questions about life in ancient Egypt, then you can get some kind of knowledge and power from that. But it can't tell you anything about the future or the afterlife. You can never conjure up anything that's going to tell you anything about the afterlife. In fact, sometimes you get the suspicion that when you conjure things up, you have to keep them under control, mind you, just like you have to keep your mind under control, right? Because that might be where they're coming from. You know, but you never get anything very useful about any afterlife or about what happens after death. You get a lot of other information, but nothing about that. And the pe- people that think they're getting it, they deceive themselves. I've examined records. I examined psychics. Psychics are very good at talking about things like that, but there's never any useful information. Why I found that the people that use psychics, usually they end up feeling happier because it satisfied their wish and their hope for an afterlife, but it hasn't given them any real proof or any real answers. And if they think it has, like I said, they deceive themselves. John, when you're conjuring something up, is there a danger... If you're not in control of it enough, I'm, I'm talking about the novices now because there's a lot of people listening now that have no experience like you do. They're not practitioners. They have zero, they're just novices. They're amateurs. Is there a danger that they could conjure up something that might be over their heads, something that they really don't want in their lives? Well, I always advise people to make sure that they're, they're actually pretty fit mentally uh, before they involve themselves in, in things like that. I always tell people a lot, people say that use, the use of drugs or alcohol will enhance the experience. I would argue that you should be stone cold sober when you do those kind of things because the use of drugs or alcohol, uh, you have to be logical about, about this, right? Any way that you impair your mind, you're going to get imperfect results, right? Like if I'm driving a car, and Alistair Crowley interpreted any kind of action as being a magical act, so like driving a car to Crowley, would be a magical act. I don't go that far. You know, I think driving a car is not a magical act. But a magical act is comparable because if your mind is impaired, and you're using the powers of your mind, basically. If your mind is impaired, then you're going to get imperfect results. The problem is that a lot of people uh, do these things with an impaired mind, and then they, they have various problems themselves. A lot of the people that are drawn to magical practitioners sometimes uh, have mental issues, where they have uh, personality issues or personality disorders, and these only kind of augment the situation and make it worse. You know, so yes, you can uh, run very serious dangers, but you can run dangers anyhow from doing anything, right? A person who's mentally impaired or a person that uses drugs and alcohol, in their day-to-day lives, they run risks too, don't they? You know, so it's equivalent to that, basically. But I would argue if you're going to be a magical practitioner, make sure it's something that you really want to do. Clarify what your goals are first, and then try and make sure your mind is as purified as possible, and that you're as healthy as possible, and that you uh, are stone cold sober when you're doing the work. And then I, I suspect that you'll get some results. Whether they're going to be satisfying results, who can say? You know, um, I was always, I've had several Wiccans on the show, and uh, witches as well, and they always tell me the same thing. When they're casting spells, if it's done with malice in mind, there is a big chance that that could revolve like a mirror, like hitting a mirror and come back on them. 
and that you shouldn't really do that. If you're going to use these powers, you have to be very, very specific on what you're using it for, and it has to be for the greater good, if you will. Would you agree to that? Yeah. Would there be any truth in that? Yeah. I, no, I'm not so sure about the, the supernatural components, but I would say this, you know, uh, you always get a bad effect if you do it for evil or for malefic reasons, you know, if you use mouth. The witches have their little rule about uh, whatever you do, it comes back at you three times. You know, so if you do harmful magic, then you get harm visited back upon you. And that would be equivalent, uh, I, I hate to say equivalent, but it would be similar to like the law of karma, you know, where you kind of reap what you sow. What I would argue is this, I would argue from a common sense standpoint, when you behave unethically, what happens is you end up hurting yourself, and you end up not getting the results you desire. At a very practical level, say you're a businessman, right? And you're an unethical businessman, so you've got a Ponzi scheme running. You're running a Ponzi scheme. Eventually, those things catch up to you, and you end up blasted by it. A person will start out in the Ponzi scheme. You know what Ponzi schemes are, of course. They'll run very well for a time, you know, but then pretty soon you don't have enough money to pay off your... Uh, er, your earlier investors, there's not enough investors come in, and then pretty soon you get to a point where you're bankrupt. And then it all cra comes crashing down. And you, For a couple of years, you might have accumulated a lot of money, houses, cars, women, whatever you want. But it's all going to come crashing down, and you're going to lose everything, and you're going to be sitting in a prison cell somewhere with nothing, absolutely nothing. Now, magic is like that, too. If you behave unethically, it's going to come back at you. I'm not going to say that it's a supernatural kind of thing because I don't believe there are gods over there watching over us because then I would be trying to interpret what gods are doing from my own standpoint. But I will say from my own observations, people that do harmful or malefic actions always end up worse than they were when they start. And the Wiccan rule about you it's three times coming back against you, I think that can't really be quantified, but I think they're absolutely correct about that. I don't, I, I don't think it pays to behave unethically at all, whether you're a white magician or, or a black magician. And a black magician, again, is interested in knowledge and power, not in good or evil. I think evil, however, the practice of evil is bad, you know, and it'll harm you in the long run. And if you're evil, whether you're a businessman, a white, black magician, whether you're a politician, whatever you are, They'll come back at you, and you end up a lot worse off than you are. Fabulous guest tonight, folks. John L. Stedman. I'm learning a lot, and that's why I'm being specifically quiet. Uh, his book is called H.P. Lovecraft, The Master of Horror's Influence on Modern Occultism. Meticulous in its research. If you're just joining us, uh, you'll be realizing this within the next half hour. We still have a solid half hour left with John. And easy way to get his book, www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. We're talking about modern occultism and H.P. Lovecraft. And John, when H.P. Lovecraft was writing, and you said he was probably accessing something he was not aware of. Um, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, you know, so many so many authors that I've had on the show, horror authors, have always come back to H.P. Lovecraft and his work as a source. Why why is that? Why why do they use him as their source for horror, if you will? 
Well, uh, Lovecraft, first of all, I would argue that Lovecraft actually was one of the very greatest writers. I would say he's one, he's the supreme 20th century writer of horror, fantasy, and science fiction. And I'm not excluding people like uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Hawthorne, Melville, Laura Dasani, Macon, Algernon Blackwood, all the writers, H.G. Uh, Wells. I'm not excluding any of those people from that assessment. I believe that he actually was a supreme 20th century writer of horror fiction, and even more than that, I believe they had one of the finest minds, not only the, uh, only the 20th century, but the 21st century, too. Now, this book is the first in like a trilogy that I'm writing. This book here, I'm kind of uh, clearing the ground, so to speak. I'm explaining Lovecraft's connection to black magic. I'm explaining uh, how he uses magical themes to uh, generate his kinds of effects, and then the influence, of course, he's had on... Um, Occultism, and then I'm done with that theme. I'm done with that. In my second, in my third books, I'm going to get more closely into Lovecraft's actual mind, you know, his mind, because there's a lot more to Lovecraft than this occultism stuff. And so it's going to be a trilogy, and it's going to take me at least three books to do it. I've actually got the second one almost written. I've got uh, 86,000 words to it already. The book that you're holding there is actually 87,000, I think, and 661 words, if I'm not mistaken. I think the last draft was that, that long. So this second book is already about as long as that. I'm still writing. I've still got three more sections to write. So the second book's going to be a little bit larger than this one. And this is going to explore another aspect of Lovecraft's thought, his metaphysics, and his philosophy. Lovecraft is virtually inexhaustible. He's inexhaustible, and he's had a very wide and all-inclusive effect on actually on Western culture in general. And so I... I think the horror people like him. I think a lot of them like him because they can mine him for certain ideas. Uh, and it, but he's had a lot more influence than that. I mean, everything's in Lovecraft when you think about it. I mean, uh, think about his influence right now. Uh, first of all, literary academics now have accepted Lovecraft as an actually important literary figure. And this is in part due to the labors of S.T. Josie. He's one of my endorsers, by the way. S.T. Josie argues that the whole theme of cosmicism which is uh, Lovecraft's treatment of man as being an insignificant factor in the universe as a whole. That's actually become a viable literary theme now. So Josie and other literary critics argue that he's, that's his contribution to English literature. But there are other contributions, too. There's a guy named Jason Colavato. I don't know if you've read his book. It's called The Cult of Alien Gods. He argues that Lovecraft is actually the progenitor of the whole alien astronaut theory in the UFO phenomena, and these are still important elements wow, of our contemporary culture. And then he's got a whole book about it. And then we've got, like, philosophers. There's a whole school of philosophers now. They call themselves speculative realists. And one of these guys, a guy named Graham Harmon, wrote a book recently called Weird Realism, and he's arguing that Lovecraft is a pivotal figure in Western philosophy. And so he's He's actually comparing Lovecraft and actually elevating above philosophers like uh, Heidegger and, uh, and artists like Picasso. And he sees Lovecraft as a pivotal figure in Western ontology, ontology being the study of reality. And so, and, and let's, let's not forget Lovecraft's influence on popular culture, the, the games, all, the, everybody out there, even if they don't, they've never read a word of Lovecraft, they've heard of Cthulhu certainly, and they've heard of some of these themes. 
So think about, in the movies and stuff, think about all the influences Lovecraft has had on our culture from all those levels alone. In my book, concentrates on primarily the occult interest, but Lovecraft was a vast figure. He was vast intellectually, he was vast metaphysically and philosophically, and I'm, I'm going to try and deal with him as fully as possible in this little trilogy of mine, but I'm pretty sure that after I've written the trilogy that Lovecraft will still remain inexhaustible, like the universe itself. It's a fascinating topic. He's a did literary. I answer the question or did I get off track? No, no, that's perfect. <laughs> I don't know if I did or not. He's absolutely a literary giant. Do you think he deserved the Nobel, um, I was going to say Peace Prize, the Nobel Prize in literature? I would put him up for it. Think about it for a minute. There's a lot of people that had been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. It wouldn't be the Peace Prize. It would be probably the Nobel Prize in literature. But when you think about it, there's a lot of people that have been nominated for that, and they've actually received uh, not the, uh, the prize itself. And they haven't had quite as much of an influence on our culture as Lovecraft has. Why is you know, that? So Why... certainly he would be a contender. Why is he shunned? Hmm? Is, it, is it because he, of the genre that he writes about? Is it because it's horror? Yeah. It is. Yeah, that, that was actually a primary problem when he started out. Like, you'll remember that when Edgar Allan Poe started out, where uh, the academics didn't accept him to begin with. You know, the academics came down on him hard. There were a lot of literary critics who argued that an interest in Poe was like an, uh, the interest of a second-rate mind. You know, the only schoolboys and stuff like sensational things. Like, and there's a lot of sensationalism in Poe, certainly, in those stories like The Telltale Heart. I mean, there's a lot of gore, there's a lot of graphic things going on, and they would argue those themes weren't literary themes, they weren't serious literary themes. And then it took a gradual kind of uh, reworking of that, and then uh, now most literary critics would accept Poe as a viable literary person, and we've seen the same kind of pushback when it came to Lovecraft. You had the great critic Edmund Wilson, who was actually a good friend of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he wrote the Lovecraft, which is a, a second-rate writer writing pulp fiction. And that kind of view persisted for a long time. But then some of the academics started reading Lovecraft, and then they started turning around. I think the first one that turned around was Thomas Olive Mabbitt, the great uh, Poe scholar. He finally came out and published a piece, and this was like in uh, 19... I think this was probably around the 1920s or 1930s or so. It, may, it might have been later than that, where he argued that Lovecraft was a very pivotal figure and an important literary figure, and he got a lot of pushback from his colleagues. But then after... And then Harold Bloom, the great literary critic, who's still alive, I think, he still tends to denigrate Lovecraft and stuff, although he recognizes Lovecraft. He can't really resist the Lovecraft... the Susami that Lovecraft is seen. Anymore, but he still tends to denigrate him. I think through the labors of people like S.T. Josie, so they've actually gone to a point now where Lovecraft is generally recognized among scholars and academics, but there's still always going to be that element. They're going to view him like the academics did in the uh, early 1900s, viewed Poe. They're going to view Lovecraft as just being kind of a second-rate horror writer that writes for just adolescents and for pulp magazines like Weird Tales rather than for serious people that enjoy serious literature. You know, John, in your book, you've got a wonderful chapter on voodoo. And uh, I was quite taken aback when I read it because it's so thoroughly researched. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Lovecraft's connection to voodoo and that whole chapter. Well, he didn't really, he didn't really have a connection per se. You know, Lovecraft's not 
Like, like in chapter two of my book, I tell you everything you really need to know. I know that sounds a little presumptuous on my part, but I believe it's true. You know, I tell you everything you need to know about what Lovecraft knew and how much he knew about black magical uh, systems and about black magic in general. And I kind of surveyed the book that you read there, and I tell you exactly the books that he had accessing. And Lovecraft, as I said before, didn't believe in magic. He didn't uh, accord it any kind of reality. And so he would use these books kind of like for source material or for details that he could use as background or as elements of his work. But he was using it basically for decor or for background. He wasn't interested in occult ideas at all. You know, so he was mining it for that kind of thing. But I can't find any evidence that Lovecraft knew anything about voodoo at all. Now, some people made claims that he actually does know about voodoo. I have some people that argue that um, what Lovecraft did is he um, he uh, had a friend that was interested in voodoo, and he kind of uh, revised one of these people's stories, and they see the kind of collaboration between these two people as being evidence that Lovecraft knew about voodoo. The person I'm talking about is H.S. Uh, Whitehead. H.S. Whitehead wrote a series of stories, and some of them were published in Weird Tales, called Tales of the Jumbie. And uh, uh, Whitehead actually did do research on voodoo, so he knew all about voodoo cults and voodoo religion, but not the current concepts of that. He didn't understand the quantum nature of the voodoo entities, but he understood enough about voodoo so he actually could do bring in real elements from actual voodoo practices. And what happened is that Lovecraft uh, corresponded with Whitehead. He had a real vast correspondence. And around the, uh, this was around the 1930s when they first started corresponding. And Lovecraft died in 1937, you know, so this was like about six years before Lovecraft's death. And uh, what happened is that Lovecraft and him did collaborate on a story, and the story didn't have anything to do with voodoo. It was called The Trap, and it was published in uh, a magazine called Strange Tales. I think it was published in 1932, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, some people say because of this collaboration and because Lovecraft had as voodoo rituals in The Call of Cthulhu, which Lovecraft wrote in, uh, in uh, 1926, that because of that connection, Lovecraft knew about voodoo. But there isn't any empirical evidence for that, unfortunately. And what you see when you see Lovecraft depicting like voodoo rites in New Orleans, and that's like one little segment in the Call of Cthulhu. He's just doing it in a very conventional way, and it kind of seems a lot like Whitehead's kind of work, but the thing is that I'm believing that any kind of that it's just coincidental that there's any kind of accuracy to that, because Lovecraft's got like your bonfires, he's got animalistic cries and chants, he's got drums beating, He's got, like, this human sacrifice, all those kind of elements that you'd expect to find in kind of a Dionysian ritual. But uh, all voodoo rituals have this, and so I would argue that Lovecraft didn't really know much about voodoo or anything at all, but he was just simply uh, writing rituals that kind of that conformed to a popular idea of what voodoo is. So I guess the short answer to that, to my long digression, is that Lovecraft, there's no evidence that he knew anything about voodoo or voodoo rituals. Okay. Well, I was going to, as an extension of that, I was going to ask you, any idea where the ritual of having a voodoo doll came from? And is that is that used in other religions as well, in magic? Oh, yeah. Dolls are, have very extensive use. Uh, dolls have, have been used since the beginning of magic. And, you know, that's, again, uh, kind of an anthropomorphic kind of thing. The uh, 
primitives would believe, of course, that the image of something is a thing itself. And so what you do by creating a doll, you have to create a magical link between the doll and uh, the person that you're using the doll for. Like you might create a doll of a person that you want to fall in love with you, and in order to create a magical link, there has to be some connection between that person and the doll. And so you'll get like a strand of their hair or a drop of their blood or nail pairings or whatever. And then what you do is basically you kind of consecrate that doll so the doll represents the person. And then whatever you do with the doll supposedly, according to that theory, it'll happen to the person themselves because it's a magical link. Now, that kind of practice, doll magic, that goes way back to primitive times, probably to times when primitive man first learned how to make dolls and stuff. And so there's a very strong element of doll magic in voodoo. There's a real good book about it, by the way. It's actually published by the same company that publishes my book. It's called, I believe it's called, the voodoo doll or something. I, I've got to, I'm going to, I've got a Ford uh, phone here that has no cord, so I'm going to walk upstairs for a minute. I live in this old, old house, by the way. It's like uh, 106 years old, so it's a really nice place to write books like this and to walk around. And I'm upstairs now. Let's see the title of the I am book. so tempted to it's ask called... you if, if you're alone in the house and if it's haunted. It's something Wait I have a minute, to I do because it's, it's night fright. What do you say? I, I'm, I I'm have coming to, down I, here. That's okay. I have to ask you, 160 years old, this house. Are you alone in the house, or is it haunted? No. My wife lives here with me, my beautiful daughter, Lygia. Beautiful. So I'm not alone in the house. Uh, the name of this book is the Voodoo Doll Spell Book. And what it does, it's uh, by a person named uh, Denise Alvarado. She's researched uh, everything you'd want to know about voodoo dolls, and she's got a whole series of spells and rituals in there for using dolls. You know, so anybody that wants that to get into this kind of thing, you might want to do it. Uh, as for dolls, however, think about it for a minute. Religion uses dolls too, don't they? They call them icons. Very much but if so. You go into Catholic, if you go into Catholic mm -hmm. church, you'll see an image of the Virgin Mary, right? Image of the Virgin Mary right there, and if it's a certain period of time, you'll see people kneeling before it, praying to it, right? And so that's a big doll. And what it's done, is it represents a force to them. It represents some connection to this human-centric God of theirs. And they're using that doll. They're directing uh, prayers, which are kind of like a very superficial magical ritual because it's the language part, right? My definition of magic is language, gestures, symbolic objects, and stylized settings. All that is getting into play when a person kneels before a statue of the Virgin Mary. So that's an image of the Virgin Mary, and by extension, an image of the Mother of God and God himself, and they're using that image by language and gestures to accomplish a magical effect. And they're probably praying for something tangible, right? Their son's off in a rack, and they're praying that he'll come home safely. Their daughter's getting married, and they want the marriage to be blessed. So you see, right there in the Catholic Church, you're seeing an example of doll magic. You know, there's been a lot of movies recently, too. Annabelle comes to mind, and there was just another one, Chucky, and all this stuff, where dolls become possessed. Is possession a part of magic? Is there anywhere in there that possession, you know, we think of the, the exorcist and things like that. Is that all part and parcel to magic as well? Well, I talk about, like, this is what I deal with in the first chapter, after I clarify what magic is and define, and after I clarify uh, uh, the different uh, elements of magical practice, 
in the last part of that section, I talk about magical methodologies. And it's necessary for me to do this because all three of those methodologies are here in the works of Lovecraft. So he uses every one of those methodologies. One of them is, of course, ritual, and we've been talking a lot about ritual here. Another one is dream control, and we're talking about using dreams in a magical sense. And in that chapter, I talk about briefly about how a magician does that sort of thing. Uh, uh, the magician Austin Osmond Spear, who actually is kind of like the pioneer of the Chaos Magic Packs, which I talk about in the last chapter of my book, he used dream control, basically, in his magical workings. And then the third category is possession. And I call it the crisis of possession, but this is a very controlled possession. This isn't like the uh, chaotic possession you see like in The Exorcist. And I believe that people can... I'm, ar like I'm marking back but to our talk with voodoo as well, because we know that one of the goals when they're doing voodoo ceremonies is to become possessed for a spiritual That's correct. Yeah. That's and I, I talk about at. that a lot in my chapter on Lovecraft and the voodoo religion, but primarily um, voodoo ritual, they utilize the crisis of possession. And what they're doing, they're actually being possessed by their gods and goddesses. And then they're doing it for a very specific person, purpose. They're not doing it because they want these gods and goddesses to bring them to perfection. They're doing it because they want the same standard goal that all the black magical systems want, knowledge and power. And that's why I deal with those sections, uh, those specific systems in the latter half of the book. Those are all black magical systems. And I go from the earliest form, I believe that voodoo originally developed from very primitive serpent worship uh, before we even had civilization. So it came from Africa, and it came from the... Middle Eastern countries, and then it slowly moved into Egypt, and then it spread out from there. So I actually deal with the magical systems in kind of a chronological sequence. So I start out with voodoo, then we move to the Wiccan religion, and then from the Wiccan religion, everything after the Wiccan religion is relatively recent, like the Typhonian systems, the Church of Saint, which was actually formalized in 1966, and then the Chaos Magic Path which came about in the 90s, and they're still continuing on into the new millennium. So it actually follows roughly a chronological sequence, but every single one of those systems is interested in knowledge and power. And the voodoo priest, who's called the Hogan, the priest is called the Mambo, they have rituals designed so that not only them, it's not like the Christian religion where you got the priest up there, and he's kind of administering, and they were kind of, indirectly participating in it by sitting in the pews. In a voodoo ritual, everybody participates. And that's why I call it it's a religion, but it's also very strongly a magical system, because if you're involved in a voodoo ritual and you do it right and you get involved in it, you will be possessed by the Lord, the gods and goddesses, and then you'll bring you to knowledge and power. And that's what the purpose of their rituals are. And they have low purposes, too. You know, I mean, you know, there's a lot of spells. There's a lot of gree-gree, they call them. It's spelled G-R-I-S, G-R-I-S, gree-gree. And that's the work that you do with dolls and with the candles and the potions and the oils and all that kind of stuff. Now, I hope I answered that one. Too. I have a tendency when I, people ask me questions, I kind of, it's like throwing a stone in a river or in a still water, and it all makes these, these pools. They all kind of branch out. And I kind of go out there like the pools, but then... Once it's expanded, I hope I can collapse back to the point that I started from and answer the question. Did I actually collapse back that time and answer that question? John, you are a deep pool of knowledge. 
and this is what's so important about you coming on the show tonight, is to break down a lot of the mythology and the creepiness around a lot of this and to explain it and get it out in the open. And to, uh, to use a very bad pun, to exercise it, if you will. And yeah. folks, <laughs> our guest tonight, John L. Stedman. The book is called H.P. Lovecraft, The Master of Horror's Influence, on modern occultism and John we're gonna to have to start to wrap up now but I want to okay. invite you back on the show when you have your next book out and um, seriously looking forward to it I want to give a quick shout out to Cameron who's listening live online and I also want to give a shout out to Kelly Lowe Kelly thank you from the bottom of my heart as always for putting together the website week after week after week volunteer show folks it's one person show it's me well it's two people now because kelly volunteers as well to keep the website up and i am very grateful because uh, there's no way i could do this show without him it's just too taxing between the research and the editing and everything else that goes into it so www.nightfrightshow there you will find the archives for all our guests and as always Click on tonight's guest book cover. I'm holding it right up now to the camera. And order this book. It's a great read, and it's a great time of year to read it. And you're going to surprise yourself. It takes away a lot of the hocus-pocus that has been um, gathering around a lot of this subject matter. And John's research is impeccable. That's why I've invited him back on for his next book. John, I want to thank you very much for joining us tonight. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it, my friend. You still with us, John? I'm, I'm still with you. I heard thoroughly, thoroughly, and then it kind of went dead for half a second. Thoroughly enjoyed it, my friend. I want to thank you so much. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I had a lot of fun. I love doing these sorts of things. Thank you, my friend. I'm, okay. Brent, I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you next time. Inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza. First-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.